City Lights is a community of faith in Jesus, seeking to equip people to exalt Him and extend His kingdom. This message is from our study through the Gospel of John called Believe, Jesus Changes Everything. If you are encouraged and challenged by this message, please share it with someone, post it on social media, or let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. So as we have been talking about, John 17 is this very, very unique glimpse of what unfiltered and unmitigated intimacy between the Father and the Son looks like. In every other engagement with Jesus, he always had to argue somebody or fight somebody or prove something or get somebody to actually believe something, but there's no convincing between the Father and Jesus. There's no conflict. There's only cooperation. And so we almost get this picture of the longest public prayer that Jesus ever gave of this opportunity for us as we were speaking about earlier as kids to almost remember around Christmas time when you would be like leaning your ear up against the door to like see what your parents were talking about because we knew it was going to be good we just knew what we just wanted to know what it was about and that's the picture that I get this morning when I think about the father and the son talking it's the high priestly prayer I spoke about it last two weeks ago that John Knox the Scottish reformer called it the 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 holy of holies in the temple of scripture it's this wonderful place where we actually get to see the uninterrupted divine heart of God. And uh, I'll start this, this passage off, and we, we're just going to take this one chunk there at the very, very bottom. There's a whole run in the middle of John 17, which we kind of bypass since we talked about persecution a lot a few weeks ago. He kind of uh, just kind of does that theme again, and so we just lump that all together as one theme, and we talk about this uh, John 17, verse 20, this theme of oneness down here. Um, that there's this father and the son that are talking, but they're not just talking about each other. They're also talking about those that are not in the room. My mom used to say, when your ears are red and burning, it's because someone's talking about you. And so he's talking about people that are not in the room. And he's, we talked about that two weeks ago, that he's a father. And, and fathers, the nature of fathers is you've got to have a family to be a father. And he's a father that longs to have this family. And he's praying for his family. He prays for you. He prays for me. And he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe into the future. You know, so there was at this point in time, there's a 12, right? And then at certain points during Jesus' journey, he also probably was praying for the 72 that believed while he's on this earth. There's 120 gathered in the upper room. But statistics would say, you know, there's billions and more even now, like in our lifetime, that are alive, walking around on earth right now that believe than all the believers in heaven. Did you know statistically, because... Uh, of, of the nature of God's spirit and his revival in our generation. We oftentimes get sold a bill of goods that Christianity is dying off, but there's, there's a rapid revival of belief in our midst right now. And this is the best time to be alive. There's more people right now in his family than ever before. And so he's just saying, I, I'm praying for you. That's what this passage is saying. It's saying, I thought of you. I prepared a place for you. I knew your name before you knew your name. I knew my plan before you knew what my plan was. And I've been praying for you. I've been thinking about you because I'm a father. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, the way that we're together, I want them to experience the party we have together. I want them to come into the community that we have. It's, 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 
you know, there's Christmas gifts, and Oliver, you know, I got that bat cave one time in 1992, but this gift, this, this is what... This is what is really going to meet their need. That They're going to be part of this fellowship. There's going to be no second-class citizens. We're all going to be at the table together. And he says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Yeah, like this idea that, that, that somehow the, the, the picture of oneness is not just for the father and the son at the table, that there's this family gathering that still happens in 2018. It's not just by and yonder, but there's this sense of oneness that's now, not later. And, and there's a power in it so much so. In John 17, the greatest prayer ever prayed, as far as we can read in Scripture, is, is that that is going to be their sermon. Like, in other words, like, when the world you know, watches CNN and sees what it doesn't want to see. And when the world is confused and when it wants something that doesn't have and when it's hurt and when it's desperate, when it's longing, it should look at the church and know I'm real. The way that we love one another in the church, the way that my disciples will love one another, not just the 72, but the billions, the way they're going to experience fellowship is, is that sermon is better than Billy Graham's sermon. It's better than Billy Graham on his best day. As great as Billy Graham is, that sermon is the sermon the world needs to hear. They're going to know that I'm real by the way that they do this family thing. He says, I have given them glory. And there's, an, there's, there's entire dominations that struggle with that passage. I have given them glory that you gave me that they would be one as we are one. Uh, God, is not, God is not insecure. He shares his glory. Now, Isaiah says that I will not, I not share my glory with another, which means the glory of creation. It could mean glory of salvation. There are certain things that we don't rob his glory, but there's glory in evangelism. There's glory in marriage. There's glory in art. There's glory in singing. And he's not so selfish and insecure that he can't share his glory with you. The person next to you who's alive in Christ has glory in them. The person in your, the, the child that you're raising up as defiant as they are, the family member that may struggle with alcohol or may be impatient or rude or boastful, there's glory in them. And that original glory, the weight of that glory is more weighty than the sin because if it wasn't, then why would he send his son to die so that we can give him glory? That's the Bill Johnson quote. It says, it says, how can we give him glory if we don't have a little glory to give him? He shares the glory, and there's abuse of glory and monopolizing of glory and, and keeping of glory. That's not the way we use it, but just because it's, it's used the wrong way and abused doesn't mean that he doesn't allow us to have it. He shares this wonderful opportunity to have glory with him. And we'll get into that theme a little bit later. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So my wife Kyra and I, um, we were married in 2005, May 14. We're coming up on 13 years at Creekside Plantation. It was this like romantic and it's still there kind of like castle looking house with a beautiful creek and a stream down there off of 14 in Pelham. And we were married in 2005, and, uh, and it just seemed like it was yesterday. And I've seen the pictures, and it was not yesterday. I looked a lot different. 
Uh, my tux looked like my head was a Lego man. It was too small for my body, and uh, I did not have this beard, and it was a little bit awkward. Kyra looked wonderful. I don't know if you guys have wedding pictures like this where the bride is like, why is she hanging out with that middle schooler? Uh, but that was definitely, that was definitely my story uh, back in 2005. So we've, we've, been, we've been through so much. Like I was telling the team earlier, like my, our Honda Pilot's this sad moment where it's like breaking down because we bought it right when we got rose. So it's like, you know, 11 years old. It has 200,000 miles on it. I call it the crumb capsule because there's like little crumbs in there. It's like, there it was, 2007. I remember that fry from Arby's, you know, like it just, it, it marks, it's like this museum of, of, of story for us. We've been through so many things. We've been through so many houses. There's, uh, we've lived in, I think I counted up like seven different places. We have four kids now. Like so much is different from 2005, you know, to 2018 in, in, in our lives. And, and so, much, so much has changed and grown uh, within the context of our marriage. Um, in reflection, you know, I really think that there's these stages. I remember this counselor, he sat down with me one time, and he said marriages, they go through these stages. They go through the stage of conformity. Then they go through the stage of competition. That's the time when there's a lot of throwing of things and arguing of things, et cetera, yada, yada. Intense moments of fellowship is what I like to call those things. And then beyond that, beyond that, there's this, there's this learning and shaping and sharpening when we actually come into what he calls a cooperation or a harmony within the marriage. And he said, you know, in the beginning, like you're 21 and you just want to be that perfect marriage that your parents' marriage never was, you know? And back in the day, you know, now we call it hashtag goals. And back then it was called Brangelina. And I'm sure that every society has some conventional norm that we're supposed to live up to. And she has the perfect dress and he always knows what to say. And they're the perfect marriage. And, and after a while, I think Kyra and I, and you probably also, you, I'm sure you also kind of just figure out like it's all kind of just silly. It's all kind of just empty. And you just kind of settle down for the long haul of like, let's just figure out how to be us. Let's not be like the super couple. Let's not be, you know, the first lady and all this stuff. Let's just be us. Let's just figure out who you are and who I am. And over time, like, there's this interesting thing where it's like we find out over time how much we don't have in common. You know, isn't that interesting? It's like you come together and it's like, oh, we love the same. Kyra and Oliver, they're the same. Like, they just, they love the same movies. They listen to the same songs. You know, they, they want to do the same things. And that seems like that's all you see, especially around that conformity time, is that we're just completely alike and there's no, no line between us. But as time goes on, you start to realize, remember Rich Hodge, the guy that was here last, uh, last week, he gave this prophetic word to me. He said to me one time, he said, Oliver, you are a turtle in the marriage, and you need to speed it up. You're too slow. She, he said, Kyra is the rabbit, and she could slow it down a little bit, but you need to speed it up. You move too slow. You, you, your, your decisions are too slow. Like, you have to feel everything. And, like, I just want to feel, you know. I, every, I find that most marriages, there's a feeler, there's a thinker. And the feeler comes home, and this is me, and I just, I'm share. how's your day? And I'm just sharing my day. And I don't want us, I don't want the solution. I don't, I don't want to solve the problem. I just want to feel bad, and I want you to feel bad for me. You know, and that, that's the thing. It's like she's ready to move. She's ready to make decisions. She's a morning person. Amen? There's some people in every marriage is a morning person. There's an evening person. You know, and, and I almost think there's like this specialization of labor where it's like, 
you know, like in the beginning, somebody decides who's going to do the bills, and that person goes on and becomes really awesome at bills, and the other person just becomes a third grader in finances. You know, like that's what happens. We kind of specialize into our corners, and we find this like diversity. But here's the thing. In the beginning of competition, we think the diversity is our enemy, but actually it's our friend. Because what happens is we recognize, I was talking to Emily Bain just outside, is that I'm thankful that Kyra is different from me because if I didn't, my family would suffer my blind spot. And so instead of us having a difference that causes division, now we have a difference that causes harmony. That we're different, but the way that we, uh, that we fellowship, the way that we, we're together, we cause strength to come into one another's lives. And so this prayer of oneness... When I think about, okay, it takes 13 years, a Honda Pilot, and seven houses later to actually find harmony for two people, it's this big task, right? Like, oneness for the church? Like, that's, in, that, I mean, that's one of those, like, there's Lazarus, and then there's that. Like, I don't know how you're going to pull this off, because I know me, and I know my friends, and I know my community. Sometimes I just, you know, like, let's just get along to get along and not really push the envelope too much, because this whole oneness thing is a little bit lofty, even for you, Jesus. You know, if you were in complete control of all, but we have these choices and, and a lot of times we don't celebrate differences. We kind of just divide and, and, and sit in the corner. I mean, think about some of the, the people that are even in this room or the people that you know. You think about the external differences that we have, like that game uh, Guess Who and with the, mat, with, the, with the mustaches and the glasses and the, and the toupees and the different heights and the different weights and the different uh, muscles long and lean. And, and then even like Jason Crumpler in the room or other doctors would tell you internally, like there's distinct differences for all of us. There's differences in, in, in our allergies. There's differences in our hormones, our, the, the way that our eye color and our pigment and all these things, like there's differences. And that's not even scratching the surface of things we really fight about. The grace people, the truth people, the Holy Spirit people, the Republicans, the Democrats. It's like we are a very diverse and eclectic people. But yet God says this prayer, like, like as I'm one, the way that I fellowship in oneness, the way that I've never stepped outside of intent, identity, or, or ambition, or purpose from the Trinity that is no less than the, than the brand standard, the family value set for which the church is going to be built on. Not that there were, everybody's the same. Not that everybody's, you know, Hitler, Third Reich were marching in step. Not unison, but uniform, not uniformity, but a unity would come about inside of the church. That's, that's his vision. That's his goal. And so uh, when, when Moses came down off of the mountain, he made this really bold proclamation. He came down off of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, I think it's five. And he lists the Ten Commandments, and he turns the corner in Deuteronomy six, and he makes this statement that the Jews would say called the Shema every morning and every night. It was something that was really part of the ethos of what they were about as a people group. He made this statement. It's ultimately what we call the greatest commandment. He says, hear, O Israel, this truth. That the Lord your God is one. So therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. With all your mind. And, and, and this statement was bold and radical and revolutionary because the, 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 the kind of default understanding of God was not that God was one at that time in the ancient times. It was that there were many gods and the gods ultimately were in a competition with one another. So this, this is a really new statement for Moses to make, a bold statement. It's not that he's the best God, the biggest God, the brightest God. He's the only one. 
There is no other God apart from him. This is the nature of our worship. When we worship unto him, it's not that he's the best one. It's the only God. He's the only name above every other name. So the, the, the polytheistic idea is, look, like, you know, my God is bigger than your God, and I'll prove it because my army is going to be better than your army. If my army squares up against yours, then we will prove not only who's the, the bigger, better nation, but who's the bigger, better God. And, 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 and Moses comes out from behind the, the, the cloud of revelation. He just says, no, there's only one God. There's only one God, and this is, this is the nature of the, the heart of, of humanity, of creation, really, is not competition, but community. From the very beginning, it was community. It was let us make man in our image. It was, it was, it was different and distinct in the way, remember in John 15, where it says Jesus is the vine, but the Father is the vine dresser? Not that Jesus was incompetent of being a vine dresser or pruning, but he gives specific roles and different uh, responsibilities. This is the idea of interdependence that he paints for us. It was always community. It was always family. Let us make man in our image. And there was always a unison and a unity. There was always a veto power and a unity that no matter what they did, they would always move forward together throughout from Genesis to Revelation. So there's prayers like when Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, I know it's ahead of me and I don't want this cup, but I choose your will instead of mine. Submission, surrender, unity, community. This is the vision and not, not competition, but community is there. And Paul would say, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if we were to, to hear somebody gossip about, about our wife, we would say, don't speak about my wife that way. Because when you speak about my wife that way, you speak about me that way. Paul tells us about in the doctrine of salvation, like you can't have the Father and the Son and not have the Holy Spirit. That's what he tells us. He says that, that to have two without one is not having any because the Lord your God is one. He's a oneness God. And he says, let them be one just as we are one. So the story progresses into, I think it's like Genesis 6, beyond Genesis 1. And the people kind of get restless about this whole God and glory thing. And the people, it says, they kind of combine and create this community to build what's ultimately called the Tower of Babel. And essentially what the Tower of Babel represents is a tower of ambition. It's man's greatest uh, approach to trying to build their highway to heaven. They're trying to like get to, 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 to get on to glory. But really from what we see from the response, we have to kind of infer a little bit for a response of God. He says, if they do this thing in the translation, of the ESV, then nothing will be impossible for them. In other words, God recognizes what we talked about a moment ago is that there is glory in people and that they can they can have glory, but if they use it unto themselves and hoard it selfishly, they hurt themselves rather than help themselves, and they kind of undermine their original intent. He says, so I'm going to confound and confuse the languages, and I'm going to break this tower down because there is no glory without God. There is no goodness without God, and they'll build a tower up to ambition, but they'll never reach their fullest intent, and because I'm a good father, I'm not going to allow this kind of company to succeed. So he breaks down the tower, and he spreads out the languages. The biblical understanding for why we have so, so many hundreds and hundreds of languages in the world is be, roots back to this, this one narrative, this one story. But the larger purpose is this, is that 
when we try and create, when we learn this, message, this lesson from the beginning until all the way until Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls and the, and the tongues provide for a translation and an understanding of unity, is that we as human beings, we're always trying to figure out how to find community and create family apart from Christ, but we can never find it. This is the warning I feel like you can see in Genesis 6, is that we're always trying to belong we're always trying to fit in. We're always trying to find a place to find a home. Sociologists say there's four things that make up a community. It's an overlapping space between me and Jordan Limerick about intent, identity, um, interest, and, uh, and experience to find a common story. We as human beings in and outside the church, we join bowling leagues for this stuff. Like we join CrossFit. The reason why we, we, we can get the dumbbell on the tire, but we join CrossFit because we long for what? For community. But what happens is from Babel to Revelation is that when we try and build community without Christ, we ruin ourselves and we ruin community. So here's what the quote says from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's the longest Christian book you'll ever read, but it's pretty awesome. And it's literally called Life Together, and it's about community. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Otherwise, I can look at the screen. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was um, just a major you know, theologian and a major uh, preacher um, during World War II in Germany, I think has some of the best revelation out there in terms of community. If you want to check out his book, Life Together, says that those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself, or I would say Christ, become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter into community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law, and they judge one another and God accordingly. It is not how we build. Christ builds his church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. Part of the process of, um, of, of journey from the last 13 years, as we come up on 13 years with Kyra, is recognizing that as much as we had common story, common interest, common identity, and people used to say, like, y'all look alike, y'all talk alike, you know, when, when you spend so much time together. Part of the journey, though, in, in that process of 13 years, and, and Lord willing, there'll be decades more, is this journey of understanding that actually we don't have anything in common apart from Christ. Nothing that actually lasts, nothing that's actually meaningful, nothing that actually is going to remain apart from Christ, and we have no power, no influence, no actual security in our marriage apart from Christ. And it puts me in a position where if I were to do a marriage counseling five and ten years ago, it would have been 80% about communication and how are we going to like get along to get along and have good you know, rules and regulations and patterns and predictable things in our marriage. And more and more, my approach to marriage counseling, if you've ever sat down with married couples, is like, but the, no, but the first thing we have to understand is, like, this thing is based on Christ. The fights and the differences, the, the misunderstandings, the kind of all the stuff that befuddled Babel back in Genesis 6 is far too strong for you and me in our intellect. 
It's too, it's too hard. It's too harsh. It's too unforgiving. Like you and me trying to get along without Christ, like desperately in need of Christ, uh, it is, is, is foolishness. It's, it's, it's futile. It's impossible. And so what, I've, what we've discovered together is that, is that you can actually be in a marriage, two believers within a marriage, and I'm just using marriage because it's the picture of oneness, but really it's, it, it teaches us about all types of relationships, and we all have family and friends and other relationships. Like, but just to go back to the marriage picture and the oneness picture, like marriages without prayer will struggle. This is what I found. Marriages, when we don't have a community like it talks in Acts chapter 2, when, when they had everything in common. Now, mind you, some of this stuff, when we talk about back in that day, when the church first got started and he prayed that prayer, that was a check that was even, I think, a, a, a higher dollar amount to cash. Because Paul is talking about in places like Romans, like Greeks and Jews and then he's like, there's rich people, and it's like, there's, there's not only black people, but there's this color, and white people, and these people, and those people. And then he's like, and then there's barbarians, and he says, all of them are under the gospel. And, and this is the task, is to bring all, all of these people together. And, he, and, 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 and ultimately, what, I, what, what he's saying is that none of those people can come together other than the single one that draws us, which is Christ, which is Jesus. And when we go about, we can be, as I was mentioning earlier, without finishing, we can be two separate spouses or two separate friends who practice individual faith with the one that we have faith in and not actually practice the faith here. And here's what happens. The sociologists say it's intent and identity and all those other words. We, we, we go to the lunchroom in seventh grade. And we find that table who laughs at the same stuff that we laugh at. Or we find that table and we're jock and we're a football player. And we find the cheerleader table or we find the nerd table or we find the whatever fill in the blank table. And what happens though, it's nothing wrong with that. It's part of society and part of the, the kind of passage of life is we leave that lunch table, but we still take with it who we are. And we think that at fundamentally speaking that that we are a, a jock, like for the rest of our life, like that's the number one thing that we'll think of. Or we think that we're an intellectual person, or we think that we're positive things or negative things, like we're a weak person, a passive person, or a strong person, or a witty person, or a smart person. And what happens is that we begin to form our relationships, or our bonds on things apart from Christ. And two relationships kind of evolve. Either A, we kind of go down that path and realize that even things like 10 years in the military isn't enough to create enough common bond between any two people other than Christ. And so we, we kind of have this season of affinity, a season of collaboration, a season of conformity. But ultimately, that conformity reaches a conflict. And the only bridge, the only glue, the only, uh, the only mortar and brick that it can actually build a tower that could reach up to heaven is, is, is only made on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It's only by the cross. It's only by the, by the death, burial, and resurrection. And so we have communities. We have, we'll have groups. We'll have friendships. And we don't pray. We don't We don't confess. Our narrative, if you broke it down with a sociologist, is not the narrative of sinners saved by grace. The narrative is middle-class white person who likes friends. 
That's the narrative. Like every culture has a code. And if you break the code down, there's lots of codes out there besides Christ. And he's saying there's no marriage, there's no friendship, you're not smart enough, you're not ambitious enough, you're not cool enough to create any type of community outside of the bond of Christ. So your relationship with Jesus and the Father is, is dependent on the cross, but so is your relationship with your neighbor. And so the truth is, is that our idols get exposed when we're close in context with community of people that, that are not like us because they offend our idols. And we're called to love people not because they look like us or because they affirm us. Or they call it binging and corfing in psychology, this idea that like, you help me feel great about my glory and I help you feel great about your glory, but Christ is nowhere to be seen. And there's entire ways we can build babbles all over again, even though we're in the New Testament. Because, because there's all sorts of new ways that humans can create ambition. But this is the truth of the gospel. Like, let me read this, this quote. This is, I think, is, is, is the lunch table of heaven. Like, when we go to the lunch table of heaven, you go to the lunch room in Malden Middle School, I've got the new Jordan, so I'm, a, I'm the basketball player. Like, that's the identity marker that we take. This is what heaven says about those that are in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is you. This is me. The old had passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the nature of our reconciliation. We were distant. We were separate. We were babbled. We were language deferred. We didn't understand one another. We were men and women, rabbits and turtles. But the reconciliation that we have after sin is this, that Christ God is reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, this is who we are. We are not guys that served in Vietnam together, first and foremost. We're not co-pastors, first and foremost. We're not ladies that went to Clemson Fellowship together, first and foremost. No, no, no. We are, we are people that were dead and now made alive. There's no judo club that, that, that makes a better bridge than that. Like, we have the same story. We have the same Savior. We have the same sending mission. And when we, when we bond our hearts in connection and community, apart from this foundation, we, we, we abandon and, and we're disloyal to who Father ultimately calls us. We need to have, according to this passage, there's more in common with us to a Syrian nationalist overseas who is born again in Christ than our next-door neighbor who is opposed to the gospel. And until that's true about us, then Christ isn't big enough in our life. When Christ is small, then everything is annoying and all of our differences split us. Everything is a burden. Everything's a chip on the shoulder. Everything's a why you let me down. And I'm telling you, it's not that person it's because Christ is too small in your life. Because when Christ is big, then what else do we have to be different other than the fact that we were once dead and now we find ourselves alive together and now the differences, instead of causing division, cause us strength. What is race compared to a death-to-life experience? What does the other side of the tracks have to do with that gospel? Our Christ is too small and it's a symptom, not the, the source when we realize there's division among brothers and sisters. 
Our Christ is not big enough yet. Let him be bigger then. Let us understand the nature and the weight of what this actually means. This is a brilliant quote from A.W. Tozer. I think just really helps us understand. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They're of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away to strive for closer fellowship? Fellowship can be an idol. Me wanting community can be an idol without me wanting Christ. My community doesn't exist to meet the belonging need in me. I have a belonging in Christ. And in finding that belonging, this is what Matthew says, right? The promise. When two or more are gathered in my name, then I will be with them. A cord of three strands. A cord of two strands is not easily broken. A cord of three strands is impossible. He is the great mediator and the great uh, uh, glue between our, our relationship in covenant. So this is what, I've, this is what I, I believe has happened and does happen in, in our relationships, is that we go down one of two roads. Either A, we spend 14 years together in marriage or in friendship or in company or in church, and we recognize that actually the affinity we have isn't that great after all. Kyra and I don't even like the same movies anymore. We don't even watch movies together because she doesn't even like movies I like. We don't even, you know, like the, the things that used to bond us together, like Abercrombie and Fitch, it shut down. I still love that store. I'm mad that they shut it down. I heard they're shutting down J. Crew too. Sad. And you find out that like the things that used to bring us together, like they have an expiration date. But what, what, what's beautiful about that is that I find what's, what's futile and, and fleeting, and I find out in the midst of all that, what's everlasting. And between us, Christ begins to grow bigger because of our differences, because we simply remain at the table. Because we consistently, as it says in Hebrews 10, consider how to stir one another up in, in love and good deeds. The Hebrews chapter, that verse in Hebrews 10, the word consider is the same type of gusto and oomph that he would prescribe. He talks about considering the scriptures. I'm a student of the scriptures. I'm also a student of my spouse. I'm a student of you. You're a student of me. We learn the process of becoming one is learning how to speak to one another through the lens of Christ, to sit at the fellowship table along with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the great promise in this, and I, I actually, let me, let me just offer this, this last verse in closing. I thought this verse really stuck out to me, and, um, and maybe it completely fits, or maybe I just take a little tangent because I thought it was, it was really important. But the verse I mentioned earlier, verse 22, it says, I have given them glory that you have given me, that they may be one as you are one. And we spoke about earlier, 20 minutes ago, and we talked about, I was mentioning to you about the, 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 the kind of nature of, of glory that, that we're created in his image. We look like him, we have emotions like him, and, and this kind of responsibility is given to us to have glory to name the animals. To have glory to build the church along with his Holy Spirit. To have glory to, to be fruitful and multiply. These are, these are good God glory things that all are in the context of relationship with him. 
And the reality is that the scriptures say that anyone that's in Christ is a new creation. We read that just a moment ago. And we are the righteousness of Christ in him. So the person that you're with, the person that you're next to, the person, uh, C.S. Lewis says, the person that's beside you, in front of you, everything around you, the, the seats will disappear, but the person beside you is eternal because souls are eternal. And they have a glory to them because they look like God. They were created in God's image. And I just think, in this, just in the conversation of community, this is more of an equipping piece. But I just think that, that, that some of the, the, the basis of what happens of the, of the Babel breakdown if I could use those terms, is that we lose our sense. Of, we have an understanding of the glory above us, but we lose our sense of the glory around us. Not that people are gods, and hear me wrong, there's a, don't hear me wrong, there's gutters on either side of this thing. We're dust, and we're vapors. That's what the psalm says, right? But at the same time, the person next to you is seated in a heavenly place next to Jesus, not even below him, seated in heavenly places with Jesus, and the reality is there's no human, there's no person that's not worth the death of Jesus and not created in God's image. The person next to you is a glory bearer. The person that you, you sleep, if you're, if you're married, the person you sleep next to that snores is a glory bearer. They hold his glory. They're a steward of his glory. And what, what Paul talks about when he talks about this unity thing is easy to preach and hard to practice is he talks about there's a metaphor that's helpful and we're a body with many members that are different. And he talks about, look, there's ears and there's eyes. And there's, a, there's because of that differences of prophets and evangelists and teachers and pastors, because there's differences in the Myers-Briggs spectrum, because there's, there's a lack of communication, there's this temptation to want to mitigate, diffuse, and defer the glory in other parts of the body. So this is the statement that he says to be wary of. The eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you, although it's tempted to do so. We're tempted to take the people that are not like us, that are proving that our little building is not a church but a babel, and because it makes us uncomfortable, we're, we're, we're tempted to buy into this lie that the person beside us isn't worthy of, of Jesus and isn't worthy of glory, which is ultimately a, a lie. This is, what, this is what John says in John 17. He says, I've given them glory so that you might infer they would recognize that that glory was given to me and then given to them, that they may be one, because there is a, not a codependency, but there is an interdependency within the church that the eye is in need of the foot. Like Rich Hodge would put it this way, turtles, you need rabbits in your life. And it's going to bug you to no end, but you need them. And you'll never be a rabbit. You'll always be a turtle, but you need a friend that's a turtle because that's the nature of humility and interdependency in, in, with community. And here's what I just think that happens. There's this forgetfulness of us that the people that are in our lives are glory bearers. And we start to notice the weaknesses and deficiencies of their gifts before we notice their glory. We stumble over who they're not, without ever recognizing who they are. And I want to tell you that as a teacher or as a youth pastor and just being a person just like you, I have never been able to help a person in their life take a step any direction, let alone to Christ, if I don't understand who they are before I understand who they're not. And if I approach that child, if I approach that small group person, if I approach that friend, and I just recognize the annoyances of their speedy nature, 
without understanding their strengths, I'm in no position to have community with them, and I'm in no position to lead them or be their friend. This is what I believe the invitation is. One of the invitations in John 17 on this glory word here is that, is that when we have the, the position and, and posture to want to unify with one another, we have to understand in some way that we need them in our life. We have to understand that in some part, because here's the thing, it's not the prayer in Paul to say like, oh, like, we'll just get along and the church is going to like not get in fights with one another and not squabble. Like the goal is like not not to squabble. The prayer is, brothers, that you would have a brotherly affection for one another. Not just like put up with each other, not just love each other, but like actually work to like each other. To understand the significance of glory in the person beside you and the, and the peace that they bring that's missing if they're not there. And until we, don't, until we have that, we don't understand Christ. Christ is not yet big enough. Um, no music today in terms of response. Let's stand and I just want to um, pray and um, spend some time um, allowing the Holy Spirit to just seek us and know us however he'd want to um, speak to us on, on this topic. I just want to, as we can just kind of have our eyes closed, I just, I just want to declare that truth over you. You're made in God's image. And God's not done with you yet. And the, the only thing that matters is not just the most important. It's the only thing that matters in your story is you've been reconciled to Christ. And you're, you were dead at one, at one point. But if you know Christ, if you're in him, if you trust in him, you are alive today. And that's the most important thing about your story. And life's about stories. And even in this week, there's going to be people with a different narrative over your life, and I give you permission, delegated from the scriptures and from the authority of God, that what God says about you is more important than that story. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are known, you are loved, and you are created with a purpose. And your gifts and your shape are not annoyances. They're gifts to be given to the church and given to Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. Holy Spirit, that you would only do what you can do. We can't build the church. You do. We don't build the church, and we don't build community. We don't do that. We have the opportunity and response to sit at your table and to practice the powerful ministry of reconciliation. What was separate, what was divided, what was different is now brought together under one head, one lordship, one spirit, one baptism, Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And we lean in on your power for that. We protect the unity that's given as a gift, not that's strived after. There are many differences in the room. And conflict and conversation and fighting isn't necessarily bad so long as it's done in love with understanding the other person's got glory on the other end of the phone. Thank you, God, for ears not only hear you, but supernatural ears to hear each other. We know that you're in the room when we are getting along in unity because that's the gift you've given us, one of the greatest gifts you've given us. So we thank you for unity, God. And... Um, we, we yield to you, and we just say this. It's an important prayer. We don't have all the answers, and we don't know everything. So thankful for the person next to us who's going to help us understand who you are. May you be big in our lives, bigger than the other stories, bigger than the other narratives, and bigger than the other words. Your, your glory and your word is more important and more, has more gravity and pull with us than any other thing in this place. 
We love you, and we bless you and seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Don't forget that uh, City Life is this Friday. Invite some people out.